Well, like I said, we're going to finish up Jesus' teaching in the upper room. Um, and today he's, he's going to primarily focus on the kind of the emotions and what's going to happen to the disciples in the next few days. You see, what Jesus has revealed over these last several hours in the upper room has been pretty intense. He has told them that uh, one of them was going to be betraying him. I mean, that's kind of a bombshell that they just received. And that's probably already messing with their emotions a little bit. Peter was told that he was going to deny Jesus. And then Jesus told them that, that he was going to be leaving, but where he was going that they could not follow. So it's just almost like emotional blow after blow after blow is coming their way. So Jesus now pivots and begins to encourage them over what's going to happen over the next few days and then on into the future. Because the thing was, is that yes, where Jesus was going, they could not follow, at least not yet. But he wasn't going to be gone for long. He was only going to be gone for a little while, and then they would see him again. Already he's beginning to encourage them. That, Listen, guys, some stuff's going to happen, but it's not the end. And what we're going to see is kind of a reoccurring, reoccurring theme in this end of the, of the section is this idea of joy. That even though there's going to be a mess, there's going to be joy at the end of it. And the reality is, for all of us who know the rest of the story, we know that they're not going to be experiencing much joy the next few days. As the events of this particular night unfolded, their pain was going to be increased, their sorrow was going to be increased, but Jesus wanted them to know that, listen, this is only going to be temporary. There is joy at the end of this. Yeah, things are going to stink for a little while, but at the end of it, there is going to be joy. They would feel sorrow. They would feel pain. They're going to feel failure. But joy and peace were on the horizon. And today we're going to see how Jesus describes that, that, that sorrow, that pain, how grief and confusion would actually be turned to joy and faith. Because that's going to be important. You see, the, the disciples are going to need this encouragement because they have a job to do after Jesus goes. And I think that this is an encouragement for us as well. Because even though that they would, they would all, every single one of them was going to fall away, they were going to abandon Jesus initially, Jesus didn't rebuke them. Instead, he prepared them to be able to endure in spite of what they were just about to do. So I want you to know that if you're ever going through life and you're having some emotional struggles, you're having some difficulties, some feeling of failures, feeling of concern, feeling like Jesus isn't with you or you're far away from him, I want you to know that you're in good company. But we have encouragement because it doesn't have to stay that way. There's joy on the other end. Amen? All right, so let's get started. Verses 16 through 19, John 16, verses 16 through 19, it says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because, and because I'm going to the Father. You know, in hindsight, it's easy for us, who know the rest of the story, to make judgments over what's going on in these disciples' lives, right? You see, because we know the rest of the story, we know what Jesus is talking about. And we look at them and we're like, 
guys, isn't it obvious what he's talking about? Isn't it obvious he's talking about his death and his resurrection? I mean, we can see that, and, and we're not even that smart. But the reality is, is that they don't have all the information that we have. It's one of the things that I, I think is, is we have to be really careful of when we read the Bibles and we're looking at these men and women's lives is that we don't get too far ahead of ourselves and remember that we actually do this kind of stuff all the time. We have much more revelation. We know the end of the story and we don't believe Jesus half the time. But we, we know what he's talking about. We know that he's talking about his resurrection and how he would be with them for 40 days before his ascension. He says, listen, I'm going to be gone a little while, but then I'll be back. We know that the little while is a three days. But the disciples, they're still quite confused at this point. They're, they're, they begin to ask themselves, what does he mean by a little while? And the description here that we're reading is this, this, this isn't kind of like a question in passing, right? It says, no, so it says, some of his disciples just said to one another, and he says to us again, and, and there's this idea that they keep talking about it. They're trying to figure out what's going on. There's, there's the, 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 an ongoing questioning of what the heck is Jesus talking about. There was considerable discussion. And I don't know why, and it's an interesting thing to know, but they only discussed it amongst themselves. They're speaking to one another. I don't know why they didn't just go to Jesus with it. Maybe they were embarrassed because they, they figured they should have known the answer, but they didn't. Maybe they were afraid that they would be rebuked by Jesus. But I do know that we can take this as a teaching moment for our own lives. That when we have questions, when we have stuff that we don't understand, that we don't go and ask other people who don't understand either. <laughs> you know, because then you kind of get into a blind leading the blind situation. You know, so when you're, when you're struggling with those things, I would recommend that one, you either go to, your, to, to people that you know might have the answer, right? If it's spiritual questions, go to your spiritual leaders or begin to speak to God about it. If you have spiritual questions, you probably don't want to ask the, uh, the, the Safeway clerk, unless you know who they are and they're, they're a spiritual leader. <laughs> right. The reality is, is that, that you want to talk to people that might have the answer. But the good news is, is in this case, Jesus knows what they're asking amongst themselves. You see, what's, what's interesting is, is in chapter 14, he already had explained that he would be going to the Father. And he even explained to them that he was the way to the Father, right? He says, listen, I'm, and, and you know how to get there. And they said, wait a minute, no, we don't tell us. And he says, we don't even know where you're going. He's like, listen, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the light. He, 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 he explains to them that he is the way. But even though he had already explained this to them, they still didn't understand. They were still having confusion and the, the truth is, it wasn't until they had uh, experienced his death, his resurrection, and, and his ascension would, would they fully grasp what Jesus was talking about. And just like Jesus often does, even though he saw that they were confused, he's not actually going to clear up their confusion. He's not actually going to answer the direct questions that they had. Because the reality is, is Jesus knows what's important. Jesus knows what they need. They didn't need the, 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 the detailed answers to these questions. 
They needed something else. So in, in, I'm sorry, in verses 18, I forgot to read the rest of it. Why don't you guys tell me I didn't go all the way? I was wondering why I couldn't find the part that I was looking for. Let's read 18 through 19 just so you know what the heck I was talking about. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And then in verses 20 through 22, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So isn't it interesting? Jesus says, is this what you're asking yourself? What did I mean by a little while? You won't see me in a little while again? And then he goes on to just completely not answer their question. <laughs> because the truth is that's, that's not what they needed. Instead of clearing the confusion, Jesus shared... Jesus... Jesus... <laughs> Jesus... <laughs> Jesus shares some analogies as to what they would be going through in the time of his leaving and return. And that's what we're going to see in the next verses. Because how many of you know that them knowing exactly how long it will be until he returns again wasn't important. They needed to be equipped to endure whatever length of time that it was going to be. They needed the encouragement to get through. Jesus knew what they needed, even though they thought they needed something. Anybody else ever feel like that? You try to tell God what you need? Sometimes it feels like the answer isn't coming. We just need to trust God that he knows what we need. So he starts off with saying, truly, truly. Anytime he starts off with truly, truly, we know something important is coming. Because this indicates that we're going to have some heavy truth and heavy prediction is on its way. They would weep and lament at his death. Jesus knew what they were about to endure. They still hadn't quite connected the dots yet. They, they didn't understand. But Jesus knew that, listen, you guys are going to weep and lament and the world is going to rejoice. Their world is going to be turned upside down. They're going to be shaken. Their faith is going to be shaken. Their leader, their friend had just died who they thought was going to save the world and free them from Roman oppression and all these things. This guy they put their trust in, he just died. And that put a little bit of a damper on their spirits. The one that they thought would save them had just fallen. And then it says, but the world would rejoice. You see, there were a lot of people in the world that were excited about Jesus' death. You see, there were the, the disciples were shaken, but the, the Jews and the religious leaders, they were excited because they thought that they had won. Their status quo had been maintained, and they weren't going to lose their, their power. But for the disciples, he wanted them to know that, listen, you're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrowful is going to turn into joy. Your sorrow is not going to last. The sorrow that they would feel would be incredibly uncomfortable. Matter of fact, it was going to be so bad that it's going to cause every single one of his disciples to scatter and abandon him. And that severe sorrow, that severe lament wouldn't remain that way because Jesus was coming back and it was going to turn in 
to joy. Because when Jesus rises from the dead, it's going to be evidence to all that, that, he was vict- that he was victorious. Man, I am having some tongue twister issues this morning. Hallelujah. But they were all going to know that he was victorious, as we already know, right? We know the rest of the story. We know he's victorious, but now they were all going to learn. And when this happens, the disciples completely change course. In an instant, their attitudes are completely flipped around. And these men that were completely filled with grief and sorrow are going to now be filled with joy, faith, and passion. This is actually one of the great evidences that the resurrection really happened. Is these men who were following Jesus were destroyed in an instant, ran and scattered, but then overnight... They come back and begin preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ's resurrection, even to their peril. People don't make changes like that and take it all the way, that belief all the way to their death unless they really believe it. And it's one of the great proofs that the resurrection actually happened is what happened to these men. So then to, to help relate what he's talking about this story that he gives them an analogy as to what they're going to face and he says when a when a woman is giving birth she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she has delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being is being born you see during birth especially in those days without modern painkillers it's not a very comfortable experience an intense amount of strain and, and pain is endured. And you know what they say is that, that when a woman is giving birth, the, the, the strain and the pain that she feels, she can finally understand what a man feels when he has a cold. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but no, they, they, they go through some serious pain, and it's intense. And Jesus begins to share this analogy for the type of pain that they're going to endure. And I think that, that all the ladies here would agree that, that the act of childbirth is not their favorite part of the experience. But as soon as the baby is born, all the pain is instantly drowned away. You don't think about anything else. When a mother looks on her baby's face, all that pain is instantly forgotten. It is turned to joy. And he says, just like that, it's going to be for you guys. When you look upon my face, all that pain is forgotten. It's going to be instantly turned for joy. And their life would be changed. And then Jesus says, You have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You see, the joy that they were about to receive could never be stolen away again. How many know you can't kill the one who has conquered death again? It could never be stolen away. Their sins were going to be forgiven. Jesus died for him, but now he lives forever. That can't be stolen away. And then in verses 23 through 24, it says, In that day will you, ask, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
You see, after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was going to be a paradigm shift in how the disciples related to God. Right now, if the disciples needed anything, they actually went to Jesus. And even this question of, of, of you will not see me, but in a little while you, you would see me, remember they had that question, that could have been asked directly to him because he was there. But there's going to be a paradigm shift when Jesus is no longer there. Since he was going to be ascending, there was going to be a new methodology, a new paradigm of how they spoke to the Father. Because now they could go directly to the Father. You see, before Jesus gave his life, nobody could stand in the, in the presence of the Father. Just the, the high priest could. Once a year could he go into the Holy of Holies, and he had to go through an entire purification process, and they actually tied a rope around his waist just in case they messed something up, because if he died in there, standing in the presence of the God, not being completely purified and clean, nobody could go in and get him, so they had to pull him out with the rope. You couldn't stand before God. But now... Now that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, now that Jesus had saved them, they could go directly to the Father. And the same is true for us. We can be in his presence. And he says if they did that, then, then he will give them whatever they ask. He says he'll give it to you, whatever you ask. And it's one of those truly, truly statements. That means it's important. He's emphasizing it. He says, listen, Whatever you ask in my name, it'll be given to you. And I don't know, I'm going to sound like a broken record because every time I talk about this, I keep seeing this same phrase over and over. It says, whatever you ask. Whatever means all of the evers that you might ask for. He will give it to you. And then to ask in his name just means to, to, to ask in accordance with his will. To ask in his name is to ask like he would be asking and, and John <coughs> clears this up in, in 1 John 5, 14 through 15. We talk about that, right? But basically, as long as you ask according to his will, then you're going to receive it. And even though it doesn't specifically say it, it is implied here. That's what it means to ask in his name. Much like a, a, an officer of the law just can't arrest you for whatever they want to arrest you for. Right? Because their, their authority is based on the one who sent them. Their authority is in the law. If the law says that, that you can or can't do it, then they can, they can act on it. Same like when we go to Jesus with, or we go, to the, we go to the Father. If we're doing it in his name, it has to be based on, on, on Jesus' authority, Jesus' will. We can't just ask anything. If you go to the Father and say, hey, I would like, I would like my neighbor to be hit by a bus, <laughs> that's not according to God's will, and, and, and you're not going to get that. Don't be confused. And I think some more. That's why John had to clear it up later in one of his epistles. But I want to say it again. We have to stop letting our experience in life dictate what the Word of God says and what it means. So many people don't experience receiving whatever they ask for. So their conclusion is not that maybe they messed up on their some end. It's that, oh, maybe God meant something else. Maybe when he says, whatever you ask, you will receive it. He only means some things that you ask, you will receive them. But that's not what the Word says. If it says it plainly, and how many of you know it doesn't get more plain than that? And it's not the only time that it said it either. It said it over and over. It doesn't get more plain than that. Whatever you ask, you will receive. So if it's going to say it plainly, how about we just believe it plainly? Amen. 
So let's ask, knowing that we will receive, having an expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do in his word. And he says, if you do that, you will receive it and that your joy may be made full. Then in verse 25, he goes on, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, and because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So far, even to his disciples quite often, Jesus has spoken in parables. So the people could understand what they were saying. The reality is, is that, that they weren't quite ready to hear the full truth. So, God, so Jesus spoke in parables so they could pick it up. But the time for this was coming to an end. Instead of speaking in parables or figures of speech, he was going to be uh, speaking plainly. And the disciples would be told plainly about the Father. Once Jesus had descended, the Holy Spirit would come and tell them everything plainly about the Father. In John 16, 13 through 15, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all the things that are to come. Starting to hear things plainly. It says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. They're going to be getting the full picture. Things cleared up. It's one of the, if you've been here a while, you know one of my pet peeves is this idea that people say, oh, God works in mysterious ways. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. His will was made clear in his son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks to us plainly. The mysteries that were there before have been made plain. We have them. It's not a confusion anymore. Now, I'm not saying we know everything, but there's no longer those mysteries that we had before. They've been declared in his son. So then after this, the disciples and us would have direct access to the Father. Once again, he's bringing it up. And that day you will ask, in my name, you're going to be able to go to the Father in my name. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to understand this clearly too. I'm not saying that when I am by the Father, you're going to ask to me, and then I'm going to ask for you. He says, no, that I'm not going to ask on your behalf. You can go before the Father and ask on your own behalf. We will have access to that throne, and we know that that's what happens. The veil gets torn in two to the Holy of Holies, and through Jesus, we have complete access to the Father. And the Father will receive us and hear us because it says that the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He says, listen, the Father loves you because you love me, because you put your faith in me, which indicates a couple things to us. One, it's a great encouragement that God loves us and that we can go directly him and to him, be in his presence, ask directly to him, but it also, also uh, reiterates the importance of our faith. Because it's based on that that we can go straight to him. It's because you have loved me and I believe that I came from God. Now I want to clarify this one thing because you might be thinking if you're a student of the Bible, well, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus would be interceding on our behalf? 
And what it's talked about here is not nullifying that, right? Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John 2, 1 through 2, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. The reality is, is that Jesus is still interceding for us in that regard. That is about us being able to approach the Father. Jesus, that's about taking care of sin and making us clean, making us pure, making us righteous. He is interceding on our behalf so that when we go to the Father, the Father doesn't see our failures. He sees Christ's success, and we can go with confidence in front of him. So Jesus is still interceding on our, our behalf because of that. But all the other things, we're not asking Jesus. We get to go straight to the Father. He's not praying on our behalf. We can speak directly to him. And we're welcome there because he loves us. And I don't know about you, but one of the most amazing things to me about God is he's not a God who is far off. You look at all the man-made gods throughout history and there were always these high and mighty beings that are somewhere far off that don't want anything to do with you. They're far off. But God is not far off and aloof from us. He is right there where we can be in his presence. We can speak to him face to face. We have access to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who created the heaven and the earth. We have direct access to that God and can speak to him. Do you understand what kind of a privilege that is? And we can approach him without fear, knowing that he loves us. And we are welcome in his presence. And Jesus continues on. I came from the Father and I, have, and I have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciple says, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So, Jesus plainly states what's going on here. He has essentially stated his entire mission purpose in this one sentence, right? <coughs> I came from the Father. In other words, I was, he was incarnated. And I've come into the world, which means that he was made a human being so that he could save mankind from their sins. And then I'm going back to the Father in his death and resurrection, finishing his work. He would be going back to the Father. And so now it finally clicks to, for the disciples that he said it this way. And I have to imagine there's got to be more to it than what's recorded because I don't see how he said anything different right here than he's been saying the whole time, if I'm being honest, right? I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, it's a plain sentence, but, but he's been telling them this stuff for, for, forever. Here are just a few of the times that he explained his death and or subsequent resurrection. John 7.33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to the one who sent me. Kind of what it says there. John 12.23-24, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's figurative, but it's saying the same thing. John 16.5-7, But now I'm going to him who sent me. To, and none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. Do not go away. The help will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Once again, talking about his death and then going 
to the Father. And that's not to mention that in John chapter 10 it's mentioned. It's mentioned a couple times in John chapter 12, a couple times in John chapter 14. And to me, like I'm reading this, and this is like I, this is what I imagine Jesus saying. He's like, listen, I've come into the world, now I'm leaving and going to the Father. Let me say it again a different way. I'm leaving and going to the Father. Well, also, I'm leaving and, and going to the Father. All right, one more time. I'm leaving and going. Oh, now we get it. <laughs> it there must be more going on here. Maybe there was more said, but it seems silly to me because... <laughs> I don't know, maybe you guys don't think like I do. I'm just letting you into my head for a second here. Whatever happened, they're getting it now. It finally clicks for them. And they, they understood now that Jesus had demonstrated that he would know what was going on. He says, listen, now we know that you know all things and do not need to, to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're like, wait a minute. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's about to happen. He's, been able, he's predicting these things you know what, we're, we're fully convinced now. And they knew that he was from God because how could he know these things if he wasn't? So then Jesus says to them, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now, when he says here this, when Jesus says, do you now believe? What he's, we can think of it to be read more like this. Almost like an exasperated statement. Like, do you finally believe now? Matter of fact, the New Living Translation actually translates it that. It says, uh, uh, do you finally believe? If you read the Amplified Bible, anybody read the Amplified Bible? It's just like the regular Bible, but louder. But it's, they put this, and you'll notice in brackets, they put the extra things. And this one, it says, do you believe at last? Jesus is basically saying, basically saying, oh, finally, finally, they get it. Finally, they understand. And this was so important because this understanding and this consequent, uh, consequent faith from understanding this would be imperative for them to survive what they were about to endure. They were going to be scattered and broken. That's what he says here. This is, it is, behold, your hour is the hour is coming when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. They needed to, to understand what Jesus was saying to accept this encouragement so that they could make it through what they were going to have to go through. And the truth is, is that, the, that they were going to abandon Jesus as a result of their own fear and disappointment of him dying. But Jesus says, even so, I won't be alone. I will still have the Father with me. I believe that he told them this to encourage them for after this was all said and done. Because how many of you know that when they first get broken, when they first get scattered, their faith is shaken and they just left Jesus. But... If Jesus isn't who he says he is, if Jesus is just some guy that's deceived them or tricked them, that's not really a big deal, right? <laughs> they, they were deceived. That stinks for them. But it's not really a big deal. But when they find out that Jesus actually is who he says he was, that he does rise from the dead, then they just abandoned the one who was always telling them. Can you imagine the shame that they're going to feel when they recognize? Can you imagine 
how hurt they would be when they finally said, man, I, we left him alone. We didn't believe him. We left him alone to suffer and endure all those things. I think Jesus wanted to encourage them. Listen, guys, I knew this was going to happen. Matter of fact, I told you it was going to happen. And yes, you did abandon me, but don't worry, I wasn't alone. Be encouraged that the Father was still with me. And then finally, we'll finish up in verse 33. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus leaves them with this final piece of encouragement. He tells them that he has told them all these things, what's going to come, what's going to happen, even their failures. He's told them all about it so that they could have peace. And they would have peace in him. You see, it's going to be easier for them to look at the events over the next few days, especially after he rises and they have full understanding of their unjustified abandonment of him, for them to incessantly beat themselves up for it. Many of you probably do this right now when you sin. You fail, you fall, and you just begin to beat up on yourself. You just begin... To, to talk in your head about how bad you are and how could God love me and I can't believe I did this again. And, and what you don't realize is happening is that the moment that you do that, you stop looking at Jesus and you start looking at your sin and yourself. The thing is, is that when we fall, we should be putting our eyes right back on Jesus. Instead of asking, begging God to forgive you, just thank him that he already has. Because that's the reality. You don't have to beg God for forgiveness. He's already forgiven you. What if I keep doing it over and over? Would you keep getting back up? Then he's forgiven you. The only way to fail, to stay failed, is to not get back up. So instead of, of focusing on your sin and beating yourself up and feeling guilty forever, and, and what you're doing is you're making it all about yourself and you're making it all about your sin. You're once again giving sin power over you when it's not supposed to have any. You've been set completely free. So instead of focusing on the failure and the sin, put your eyes back on Him so that you may have peace in Him. Because you are forgiven. His victory was enough. And the reality is, is that as a disciple, in this world, we're going to have tribulation. Just like they had, we're going to have tribulation as well. But we should be encouraged because Jesus has overcome the world. When it seems like things aren't going well, when it seems like we've been, we've been dropped to our knees, when, 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 when someone's got their heel against our neck, remember that Jesus is victorious. And remember that in Him, you are as well. Amen.